told of a minister who dies. And he's waiting in line at the pearly gates, and ahead of him is a guy who's dressed in sunglasses, a loud shirt, leather jacket, and jeans. Peter addresses the man and says, Who are you so that I may know whether or not to admit you into the kingdom of heaven? The guy replies, I'm Joe Cohen, taxi driver in New York City. <laughs> Peter looks at the, the book of life. He smiles. He sees the man's name, and he says, Take this silken robe, this golden staff, and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the taxi driver goes into heaven with his robe and his staff, and it's the minister's turn. He stands erect, and he booms out as loudly as he can. I'm Joseph Snow, pastor of First Baptist Church for the past 43 years. Peter consults the list again. He sees his name. He says, that's great. Here, take this cotton robe and wooden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven. The minister, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That man was a taxi driver. He gets a silken robe and a golden staff, and I get a cotton robe and a wooden staff? That can't be right. Peter said, well, you know what? Up here, we reward by results. While you preached, people slept. And while Joe drove, people prayed. You know, and that story perfectly introduces for us the central theme of Luke chapter 11. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to this popular passage of Scripture where we find the disciples learning how to pray. And that's our theme for today, learning how to pray. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 1. We read these words, And it came about while he was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Don't bother me, the door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs." And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? You know, this great prayer and a similar one found in Matthew's gospel in chapter 6 has been called the Lord's Prayer for almost 2,000 years. And it remains the greatest prayer of the church. There's been countless sermons on prayer and of basic Christian doctrine have been preached from this text here in Luke chapter 11. You know, many of the early church fathers uh, published expositions of the Lord's Prayer. Martin Luther, for example, uh, preached an entire volume of exposition with it as his subject matter. 
And so, and the, you know, in fact, the famous Westminster Catechism of the Presbyterian Church bases its last nine questions on the Lord's Prayer. You know, millions of hours uh, of intense study have been devoted to these verses by centuries of successive Christian scholars. You know, and when you take all that into consideration, it is, as, as all Scripture is, is timeless, and it's a powerful text for all of God's people who are still learning how to pray. And that's really the message of this text, learning how to pray. You know, as I examined this, this uh, passage, I found it was broken into two dimensions. Uh, the first is vertical, and it focuses our attention on God. And the second, and as we'll see, has to do with the horizontal, and it focuses on us. And so it's not a formula for prayer, as many people have mistakenly used it throughout the centuries. It's not a formula for prayer that you have to pray this prayer first and then you slap on whatever it is at the end of all of it. I mean, if you stop and think about it, if Peter had to pray this prayer first, he would have drowned. You know, it's kind of like, our Father and I have the Lord, save me! You know, I mean, you know, he got right to the point. But at the same time, it gives us a good overview or understanding of a pattern of prayer so that we who need help knowing how to pray will get instruction from the Word of God. And so with all that in mind, I want to take a moment and look at uh, what we can learn from the Lord's Prayer and discover how these truths should shape our everyday prayer life. And the first thing in your outline that's before you is that uh, we're introduced uh, to the priority of prayer in verse 1. It says, and it came about that while he was praying in a certain place. You know, the, the single greatest argument for the priority of prayer is the fact that our Lord was a man of prayer. You know, throughout Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, we've seen Jesus pray on many occasions. If you recall, we first saw him praying at his baptism. Again, before he chose the twelve. Out of the multitudes of people who followed him, Jesus prayed before he chose those twelve men. And and as the crowds increased, he would get away alone and he would pray because of the multitudes and because of the mission that he was on to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, he prayed that that God would, would soften the hearts of those who came before him, that their hearts would be prepared to hear the truth of God's word. And it's so important that that's the case. Anytime that we come and we gather and we listen to what God has to say, that our hearts are right before God. We don't come in with preconceived notions. We don't come in with our mind already made up. We don't come in with a mindset that says, you know what, it doesn't matter what this guy says. It doesn't matter what's in here. I've already come to conclusions in my life, and I don't want to hear any of that. We come with an open heart seeking God because the Word of God says that whosoever seeks Him will not be disappointed. Whosoever calls upon Him, uh, you know, that He hears that prayer. And so Jesus, as we've seen often, before, you know, He asked the twelve for their great confession of faith, who do people say that I am? He prayed. And now again, as we saw in the transfiguration and also here again in this passage, we're told that it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place... You know, and so often we look at life and say, you know what, well, we need to go to a certain place. And that may be well and good, and that that may be true. But what I know about prayer is this, wherever Jesus prayed was that certain place. Because we don't get hung up on the place, it's who we're praying to and the heart of the one who is praying. Wherever he went and prayed, that was the certain place. And we can get so legalistic or regimented or so disciplined in our life that we feel somehow or another that we have to do it the same way. It's almost like an athlete who, you know, he goes four for four one game and he tries to remember everything he did that day and then repeat it. I got guys who come into chapel and they'll sit in the same place if they went four for four the day before. 
you know, and if they walked out of the room and they hugged me, they'll, they'll, they'll hug me the same way and they'll eat the same chicken that they had and they'll put their sock on, you know, left foot first. Oh, no, did I do left foot first or right foot first? And, you know, and, and we, begin, we become so superstitious, as they say, that we, we forget that God is in control of all things. And so it's not a matter of, you know, oh, we go to that certain place and we pray that certain prayer. And that's what we'll see as we go through this. But the priority of prayer is introduced to us in the fact that Jesus prayed. And the disciples knew that Jesus often prayed alone. And they wanted to learn from him the secret of spiritual power and wisdom. You know, the example of Jesus should make it abundantly clear to all God's people the priority of prayer. Now, since the perfect man, the Son of God, prayed, so should you and I who are being conformed to his image. God wants us to pray. And I know we struggle with it, and that's why this is a wonderful passage to learn how to pray because I'll be transparent with you. I struggle with it. I wrestle with so many things when it comes to prayer. It's like, God, we know, but, but, but you know all things, and, and nothing can happen in our life that you don't allow and you don't ordain. And, 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 you know, we come to you and we pray, and yet if your will will be done, why pray and waste the time praying? And so we struggle with all of that, and yet the Word of God clearly teaches that Jesus prayed. And it's a perfect illustration, an example for us that we too should pray. And when I was wrestling with this, the, the question that, that, that arose in my own mind is that, you know, is prayer the number one priority in my life? Or is prayer a place I go after I've tried everything else and there's nowhere left to turn? You know, everything else has failed, so oh, now it's time to pray. You know, I've been learning the hard way through this process that God has been taking me through. And, and, and what I've learned, as I've said, and I'm going to continue to share in that, it is, is this, that it is not until He is all we have that we learn He is all that we need. And so God strips away everything else, and He says, you know what? You have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to turn. And now you will see that I am more than sufficient in your time of weakness. For in your weakness, my power or my strength is perfected. And we don't get it. We don't understand it. And I'm speaking personally. I don't get it until I experience it firsthand. We can share with one another and we can only begin to imagine what one another goes through when we go through difficult times and trials in our life. But until you go through it, you just don't get it. And, and that's been true of my life. And I'm learning, I'm learning through this whole process that, you know what, until he is all that I have, I will never know he is all that I need. Another interesting point that relates to this priority of prayer is the experience of the disciples and their knowledge of John the Baptist. I want you to notice it says, and when it came about that while he was praying, speaking of Jesus in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. And there was a tradition that rabbis would teach their congregation or their people or their followers, disciples in this case, how to pray, to learn how to pray, to know how to pray. And what happened here is that, you know, John the Baptist, and, and I'll be frank with you, my, my view of John the Baptist is John the Baptist was a stud. I mean, John the Baptist was a man's man. I mean, you know, John the Baptist could have sang in the men's ensemble here. I mean... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? In fact, he used to wear clothes like the thing that Mike had on. I don't know what that was, but, 
You know, it's kind of like, you know, this wild-looking stuff, man. I mean, you know, John could have done that because, you know, he was, he was out there in the wilderness. Because Jesus said, he goes, what do you expect when you went out to the wilderness? See some soft guy out there? It's not he's a prophet, man. This guy was, was spirit-filled before he was born. In the womb, he was spirit-filled, and he came out in the power of God, and he had a purpose, and his purpose was to be a forerunner of Jesus and to be able to introduce to the world, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he ate, he ate locusts and wild honey, and, and he was out there proclaiming, you need to repent from your sins, and you need to turn to God for the forgiveness of your sins. And he didn't hold back. In fact, he preached truth up to the point where they chopped his head off. But he is rewarded to this day in the presence of God for his faithfulness and his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he was a man's man. And yet at the same time, what I learned, and this is one last glimpse that Scripture gives us on the life of John the Baptist that I never picked up until I went through this passage, and that is this. John the Baptist was a man of prayer. He was a man empowered by prayer. He left a legacy. He left an experience that those men saw and said, Jesus, teach us to pray just like John's disciples learned to pray from John. We need help. And that's what he did. You know, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets, and yet John had to depend on prayer for strength in this life. And you know what? Here's the, the logical question is this. If Jesus prayed and John the Baptist prayed, how much more so should we? And then the question that really troubles me is, how much time do we really pray? The Bible says we're to pray without ceasing. That we have hearts and attitudes that's always prayerful before God. And yet, how much do we really pray? Take a moment and just evaluate this past week. How much of this week was spent sitting at the feet of Jesus as we were confronted with the last time in his word? How much is this week spent praying? How much of this week was spent eating watching TV, going to the movies, doing some other hobby, doing things that we enjoy doing. And it, and it really is troubling when you really start to think about how much time do we really spend doing the things that God says we should be doing versus the things that just crowd out that time. I need all the help I can get in every area of life. And God says I can come to him. We need to make prayer a priority, but, but as I said, I'm going to be very transparent with you. You know, I find I don't always know how to pray, and I, and I believe that most of you can relate. You know, that's why, you know, I'm thrilled to find this request in verse 1. Lord, teach, teach us to pray, and more personally, Lord, teach me to pray. Throughout my life, and especially now as I'm riding this cancer coaster, you know, I, I don't even always know how to pray. And, uh, and it's, it's just crazy sometimes. It's kind of like, you know, I appreciate all of you who prayed for me. You know, Thursday I went and I had those tests, and it was, I, it was the most peaceful time that I've ever had going through all of those tests. And I sensed God's presence through that whole time. And I prayed while I was laying there. I was like, hey, you know what? Nothing else to do. <laughs> Didn't have a channel changer in my hand. You know? If I did, I would have certainly changed the channel. But, you know, and I prayed, and I, and I felt God's peace and his presence in that moment of time. And yet the next day we got results that they found three more tumors. 
And so, you know, we're in this coaster ride that I've told you about, and I praise God that I know the ride operator, but, you know, sometimes in life it's just like, it, it isn't all, just like these little ones, you know. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's on this one that I'm on now, and, you know, and you go, wow, God, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what, I don't know what to say anymore. I, I don't know, you know, how to come to you, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know how to pray. And he goes, good. I'm glad you admit it because I want to teach you how to pray. I'm always troubled by people who think they really know how to pray. I'm troubled by people who don't wrestle with their faith. I'm troubled by people who think they got it all together. Because, you know, how much time are you really spending in Scripture? Because I'm going to tell you, even from this text, I get confused about how to pray. And so we're going to learn how to pray. And, and, you know, if Martin Luther could do volumes on, on this text, certainly you can bear with me for part one and part two. And so we're going to go through and we're going to look at part one and part two. And the first part is going to focus on the, the vertical aspect of prayer. You know, and in Jesus' response, he assumes that you and I will pray because notice what he says in verse two. He says, and he said to them, when you pray, just as when you're tempted, it's a reality of life. He is saying to God's people, when you pray, not if you pray, not should you pray, not if you should decide to pray. You know, I I heard somebody say that there was a billboard in front of a church that said the Ten Commandments, not multiple choice. You know, and, and I like that. It's not an option. It's like when you pray. And he says, when you pray, and it introduces to us that God expects to hear from his people and also it introduces an absolutely mind-boggling truth, which, which I'll call the personal nature of prayer. In verse 2, he says, And when you pray, say, Father. Father? Don't miss this. This is one of those things when you were a kid and, and you, you dumped out the Cracker Jacks to get to the prize. This is like that, but a lot better. This is an adult version of that, finding the prize. You know, finding that buried nugget or that buried treasure. And when I, when I looked at this and I got into it, I was like, when you pray, say, Father, that God should be personally addressed as Father was revolutionary in Jesus' day. This is so mind-boggling. These men would have been blown away, as we would say in our vernacular today. They would have been blown away by what Jesus said. When you pray, say, Father. Father. You know, the, the, the idea of the paternity of God, the fatherhood of God, only 14 times, think about this, in the 39 books of the Old Testament, the word Father is only used 14 times, and each time that it's used referred to the fatherhood of the nation of Israel, never to the fatherhood of individuals. God is never called Abraham's father. God is never called Jacob's father. God is never called father of anyone in the Old Testament. He is the father of Israel. Fourteen times in 39 books. By contrast, Jesus enters the scene and he says, When you pray, say, Father. Sixty times in the New Testament alone in Jesus' prayers... He calls God his Father. This is mind-boggling. This is revolutionary. This will turn your life upside down when you really grasp and understand what Jesus is telling us as far as how to pray. He's saying, when you pray, say, Father. Father. What's more amazing is, 
he addressed God as Father in every one of his prayers. And he says that you and I can do the same. And and if this doesn't capture the personal nature of prayer for you, what I'm about to say will drive home the point, and that is this. The word that Jesus used for Father was not a formal word. It was instead a very common Aramaic term that was used in addressing one's earthly father. The word is Abba. Jesus, as a young person, addressed his earthly father, Joseph, as Abba. When we pray, Abba, those same words that fall from our lips are the same words that Jesus used when he addressed God as his Abba. In fact, in Matthew 27, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, he was quoting... Psalm 22, he did not use the word Abba. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And any good Jewish student at that time would realize that Jesus as a rabbi, oftentimes what a rabbi would do is he would come into a room and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then they would immediately know the text. What text is that from? Oh, Psalm 22. And they would repeat that psalm in unison behind what he had just said. As Jesus died on the cross fulfilling scripture, he said to those who were listening to him with an open heart and an open mind, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would have immediately thought if they had an open heart and mind of Psalm 22, they would have went back to the psalm and read everything that was in there in great detail as to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Savior, God's Messiah. They would have read that. They would have recognized that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the long-awaited promised one of God who came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost, who came into this world to offer his his life as a sacrifice on the behalf of all who would believe and trust in him. This is, Jesus is, God's appointed plan of salvation. Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. You know, that's why Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father, but through me, you can't get to heaven, but unless you come into personal faith in me as your Lord and Savior. They would have had, if they had an open mind and open heart, they would have known that. But he reverted back at the end, his last statement that he cried out to God was, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the word Abba is found. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his life for us. He laid it down on his own initiative. No one put Jesus to death. Our sins put him there collectively, but he did it willingly. It was the predetermined plan of God that sent Jesus Christ into this world. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And what he was saying is the word Abba was the same word that Jesus would have used when he addressed Joseph. It's the same word that we would use. And in fact, what's fascinating is there is no other evidence in external literature of that day that the word Abba was ever used of God until Jesus introduces it to us in this passage. Now, it was like going to God and calling him Daddy. Dad. Don't miss how incredible this truth is as it relates to our learning how to pray. To the traditional Jew, Jesus' prayer shocked them beyond belief. It was something that was never said. It was something that was never done. And Jesus said, now you can call God your dad. With reverence and respect. Jeremiah, a great scholar of his day, said in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. 
He gives them a share in His sonship and empowers them as His disciples to speak with their Heavenly Father in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child would with his own father. And this is to be the foundational awareness of all of our prayers. For those who have repented of sin, responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, His death on the cross, His power of His resurrection, and and you've received Him as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says, to those who have received Jesus. God gives us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. We have the spirit of adoption, as Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8, that we can cry out before God, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, if you'll turn with me and look at that, it's a passage that many of us know because it's recited many times at Christmas, but you know what? It's a passage that's applicable to all, all year round. In, in Galatians chapter 4, notice in verse 1, as Paul writes these words to the church at Galatia, he says, Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date that's set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the, element, under the elemental things of the world. But notice this, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are as sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir through God. I want you to notice he's saying that we were born as as orphans out in the street who have turned our backs on God. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he would redeem all of us who are under the the constraints of the law or the, the condemnation of the law. And he's saying that if you would turn to Christ and you would trust in Him, that He died on the cross for your sins, you believe upon Him, you would repent of your sins, you throw yourselves upon His mercy and say, forgive me for I've sinned. And I believe that you have died and paid the penalty for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you're alive today and that you hear my prayers and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. For those who are born again by the will of God, by the brokenness of a human heart that cries out and say, God, forgive me. He says that He takes us as orphans from the street and He moves us into His home, into His household. And He says that now you have all the rights and privileges as a child of God to those who believe upon My Son. That we are adopted into His family and because of that, that orphan that lived out on the streets could now come into this house and look at his father or her father and say, Dad, look what you've done for me. Look at who you are. I can come to you and I can share with you the troubles of my life. You know, the truth of God's word is clear. God is now our dad to those whom have trusted in Christ and come to the throne of God, come to the cross first before we could boldly approach the throne of grace. I know that I've been adopted as a child of God, that I am forgiven because of Christ and his death and the power of his, of his crucifixion, the power of his resurrection. I'm now adopted by God. I live in, within his family. I'm a part of the member of the family of God. And now I can go to God as my father and say, you know, Dad... I, I got a question for you. Dad, I need something. Dad, I got a problem. And I need your help. And it's not disrespectful whatsoever. This is what God's Word teaches. 
that we can have that type of personal intimacy with the God who has created us. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's a difficult concept to grasp for many of us, and the reason is very simple. This past week, I had lunch with a couple who are missionaries, and they spent time on the streets of Montreal. And they spent time sharing the gospel and God's love with prostitutes and street kids. And this gal was telling me the story that she went to this gal who was a teenager who had run away from home and she was living in the streets of Montreal selling her body to try to make it through life. And she said to her, you know what? God wants to forgive you of your sins. You need to turn from your sin and you need to trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. He wants to forgive you and He wants to become your father. And you know what she said to her? She said, if God wants to be my father and he's anything like my dad was, I want nothing to do with God. And my heart was broken when I heard that. But I knew exactly what she was saying. Because depending upon your relationship with your earthly father, either this concept will be so foreign, or it will be so familiar. It's going to be one or the other. My parents divorced when I was young. My dad left us when I was three or four years old. I don't even know how old I was, but I never had any relationship with him whatsoever. My mom got remarried. She married a guy who took us in, adopted us, changed our name, but he was not a man who was approachable. And there was always a distance there, and there was always an unsaid or very clear understanding that, you know what, you're not really my son, you're not really my kids. And so we recognized that. I understood that growing up. And so there was never that relationship. There was never someone I could go to and say, Hey, Dad, you know what? i got a problem. i got to talk to somebody. You know, can I talk to you? Never had that. And because of that, this isn't an excuse. This is just to encourage those who may be able to identify with what I just said. So when I read this and God says, Chuck, you can come to me like a dad, I go, I don't get it. I, I don't understand that. You know, because my, my concept of that is that, you know, I'm just in for another disappointment. And I'm struggling with that because it's like, hey, Lord, you know, I, I, okay, I'm coming to you and I'm praying. And you know what? Nothing that I've prayed so far has come true in my life at this point when I'm dealing with the cancer coaster. It's like, hey, clear margins. Wow, great. Oh, hey, whoa, there's three more tumors. What? <laughs> what? You know, and I'm, and I'm struggling before God and I'm wrestling with, I, I believe that he loves me. I believe that he's trustworthy and, and we're going to learn some more about that. But I'm just telling you right now, it's a real struggle. So I want to encourage those who have that type of background not to buy into that lie because that is what it is. It is a lie that, that, that calls into question the character of our God. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, Dad. That's who we are, those who have trusted in Christ. We are children of God. We've got a good father. And for those of you who are blessed with good earthly fathers, you would say in your heart, amen, because I had a dad just like that. I could go to my dad when I needed tennis shoes for whatever, he went out and took care of them. When I needed this for something else, he was there. When I just needed somebody to hug me and to hold me, my dad was there. When I needed somebody to get counsel from, he was always available. That's the dad that I had. And for you, I would say this, don't waste another minute of time without leaving here today and calling that man on the phone and saying, thank you for being a dad who reflects the character and the goodness of our Heavenly Father so that I can understand what a wonderful God that I have. For the rest of us who don't have that experience, then I just say this, praise God we do now. Praise God we do now. And so when we look at this, we cannot miss this. 
because it is so important to recognize and understand that depending, as I said, on one's relationship with your earthly father, this will either be foreign and we must take it by faith or to be familiar and we'll just continue the relationship with God that we have with those around us. It's a wonderful truth. And so as we go through this, the personal nature of God and the personal nature of prayer is just there. The sweetness of that name, Abba. The wonderful truth of having that relationship with our God who is our creator, who loved us and gave himself for us. That is so sweet. That is so wonderful. And it is the truth. And we walk by faith and not by sight. God's word says it. I believe it. Do I struggle with it? Absolutely. But you know what? In the end of the day, whatever God says is good enough for me. Sometimes I don't have answers, but I just know this. That's what it clearly says. And so, you know what? That's what I lean on. I don't lean on my own understanding, but in all my ways I acknowledge him, and he sets my path straight. Now, if you look at the pattern that's involved in, in uh, verse 2, you'll notice that there's a pattern that develops. And the pattern is, you know, if you look at Matthew 6, which we won't do today, but if you look at it in your own time this week, you know, it reveals a similar pl- prayer, but with distinct differences. And I believe it's because this prayer was meant to be a pattern to learn and not a ritual to be mindlessly recited. Now, it doesn't mean that any time we recite the Lord's Prayer that we're mindlessly doing so. But there are many times, and I can, I can tell you from my own life, you know, as a kid to learn the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we, we used to say the Lord's Prayer in the locker room before our football games. All right, bring it in, guys. Our Father on heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come, the will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those trespasses. And at least not in the Lord for me. Let's go out and kill them now. It's like, what was that? You know, but that's what we did, you know. And if you read Matthew 6 in the context, you'll read that, you know, there was, there was repetitious prayer. And there's a mindset that says, if we repeat the same thing over and over again, somehow that there's magic in the words and repeating prayer. And Jesus said, don't pray repetitiously as Gentiles, people that don't even know God. Don't get caught up in saying prayers for the sake of saying prayers. I mean, I came from a background that, you know what, that's what we used to do to make up for our sins. Go out and say this many prayers. And I can't even keep track of how many I had to say. You know, and the next time I go back and confess, uh, I think I didn't keep track of the last time. Can you just give me a, a little bit less? You know, it's just too big a burden, you know. And I thank God that Jesus died for our sins and we don't have to earn our way to heaven because I'd fail miserably and so would all of us. It's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. He paid the price. There's nothing we can do. It's awesome to know that, to be free from that. But what he's saying is that it's a pattern for prayer. It's not the magic formula. I said 500 Our Fathers for you and lit 16 candles and you still got three tumors. Hey, you know what? It's not in the power of the the words. It's in the one who responds. It's in the one who we pray to. It's in the one who hears our prayers. The power is in him, not in us. But he says pray. When you pray, say, Father, Abba, Dad. We have a personal relationship with the God of the, uh, of the universe. And not only that, but he says, you know what? And recognize his character. Recognize who he is. Matthew's account says, and when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven. The position of God. He is, he is Lord above all things. He's the creator of the universe. I want you to stop and think of something that's very simple to, to comprehend for me. And that is this. While I slept last night... God held the universe together. Think about it. You know, we'd have to get up and go, where are we at in the universe today? 
God held the universe together. It's not a question of his abilities. It's a question of his will. Is he able to cure cancer? Please, he raises people from the dead. That's not tough. And so whatever your ailment is, whatever your struggle is, whatever you're going through, I want you to recognize the character of God positionally. He is in charge of all the universe. There is nothing that can happen to you that God doesn't allow for His purposes, for His glory, and for our growth. You know, we often say, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Well, I'm telling you right now, He has a much higher view of me than me. I'm like, I can't handle this. It's like, <laughs> I know, I'm just like, you know, I get those phone calls with my poor doctor, and I, you know, it's not his fault, and I bless him for being the guy, and I always tell him, you know what, if, if, can you call me? And so it's like, yeah, thanks. You know, <laughs> but, you know, but when he calls, like, hey, this is what they found. All right, it's not your fault. Thanks for calling. I appreciate you calling. Then somebody that doesn't know, doesn't care. You know, and it's like, praise God. And so it's like, Here's, this is where we are, all of us, because God has allowed it. He has ordained it. There is a purpose behind it. And I don't know what all the purposes are. And I don't understand it. And so we pray. He says, if you don't know how to pray, let me teach you. Remember who I am. Remember what I can do. Well, remember what I've already done. And remember what I will do. And as we look at that, that's exactly what he says. Look at his position. Look at his purity. Hallowed be thy name. May your name, Ava, be revered in how I conduct my life. We're to praise him and to worship him. We're to lift him up in our words and in our actions. And, at this, and as I thought about that, you know, I want to I explain to you one more time because some of you struggle with what we have jokingly called our lockout policy. And, and if you would allow me to try to explain once again why we've done it. If you're late coming in and and the doors are shut because we've started to worship, it is because we think and believe, based on what Scripture teaches, that worship is just as an important part of our service as hearing the Word of God or as communion on the first Sunday of the month or anything else that we do, pray and otherwise. We believe that worship is fundamental to who we are as God's people, that we can praise Him for who He is, a God above all things. We can revere His name. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Revered is your name. I get troubled by people who call ministers reverend because that word reverence is one that should be set aside for God. He is to be revered above everybody else. He is God and none of us are. And so what we decided was, you know what? Think about it. Nobody walks into a movie theater 30 minutes into a movie. Why? Because you don't want to miss anything. And you think the, the beginning of the movie is as important as the middle of the movie and as the end of the movie. And so you don't walk in 30 minutes late. If you go to a Ducks hockey game and the puck's in play, you can't even go in. The ushers stop you with a sign that says, puck in play. If as a culture we have so much respect for a hockey puck, <laughs> the puck is in play. Uh, what an indictment it is that we don't have... Any more respect for our God? And the reason we don't want people walking in is because you interfere with those who are focusing on praising God for who He is. And we try to do it in an organized, in a timely manner, in a systematic manner. But what I'm I'm here to share with you is this. 
If worship is important to you, you'll get up earlier and you'll get here on time. And if it's not important to you, I haven't done a very good job of helping you see how important it is in our walk with God. And I want to encourage you, and I want to ask your forgiveness, if somehow or another I've ever given the impression that praising and worship our, worshiping our God is not as important as sitting and listening to His Word, God, forgive me for that, and I'll ask your forgiveness. But I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to implore upon you, to get here when the service starts, because that is when we begin to lift Him up for the wonderful God that He is. Abba, Dad, look at you've done for me. Look at you've given to me. You've given me newness of life. All things have passed away. I found forgiveness in the death of your son upon the cross and in his resurrection. You have forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and even those I haven't even thought about committing yet. You love me and you gave yourself up for me. When I was in rebellion against you, you sought me out. You hunted me down. You sent Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost, including me. And you know what? I need to praise you for that. You're a wonderful God. I need to hear your voice through your word. But I need to recognize and honor who you are. Hallowed be thy name. And then he says, thy kingdom come. The plan of God. You know, at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, God's plan will come to fruition. I don't know what God's ultimate, I mean, plan as far as the temporary chapter of cancer is for my life. But I know this. I've read ahead and I've read the book. And I know his ultimate plan for all of God's children is that his, as his children, we will be in the presence of our dearest dad for all of eternity. For when we're absent from this body, we'll be present with the Lord. And that is a promise of God. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. And yet it's part of the journey that God has us on. And it's a wonderful truth to know thy kingdom come. There's a day that Jesus Christ will return to this earth as he did the first time, but not as a suffering servant. He will come as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. As the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand staring in the space? This same Jesus will return again one day. Just as you see him depart, he shall return. And when he comes, he will judge all of humanity as to whether they have trusted in him or not. And we will be judged according to our sins for those who have rejected Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection for your forgiveness. He will come again and judge the living and the dead. He will establish his kingdom here on earth and for a thousand years he will reign in all of God's people. We know we will reign with him. That's the promise of God. And one day he will, he will, he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible doesn't say much about it because the concept for us is so mind-boggling. But to be in the presence of our Savior, to be in the presence of our eternal Father, our our loving God, is just a, a thrill and an excitement and anticipation that I would hope and pray that all of God's people who have the Spirit of God indwelling us, that we can cry out in our spirits because God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God to those who believe in His name. And we have the privilege to call out before God, Abba, Dad, can I come to you and lay this burden at your feet? Can I boldly approach the throne of grace because of what Jesus has accomplished in my place on the cross 
so that I may find your mercy in this great time of my need. And the Bible says, absolutely. Chuck, the door is always open to you. You can come anytime that you want. Just come as you are. Confused, upset, angry, however it is, and I'll give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we're just, uh, we don't know how to pray. We, we don't know a whole bunch of things. But we're just grateful that your word very distinctly tells us how to pray. And God, I just pray for those who are here today that aren't sure of their relationship with you. Your spirit does not live within them. Your spirit does not cry out, Abba or Father. In fact, you're so distant to those people that they don't even know if you exist. But God, we know if they've come with open hearts and open minds that you will speak to them. That they have heard even to now your voice. They have heard you tug on their heart. They know their greatest need is forgiveness. And maybe it's hard for them to come to you because of human relationships that have made it difficult to go to anyone. God, I just pray right now that their hearts will be soft and their spirits will be willing to throw themselves upon your mercy, to find themselves at the foot of the cross, to look up and see the price that Jesus paid to set them free from their sin. So that if they confess their sin, you will forgive them. If they trust in Jesus, his death upon the cross and the power of his resurrection, you say that you will adopt them into your family as you have adopted those of us who have made that same point of confession. We thank you that you're a loving father, that you're a good dad, that we can come to you and cry out, Dad, I I need your help. Dad, I don't know what to do. Dad, I don't know where to turn. And we know you're here. God, we're just grateful for your word that reveals who you are. That your God is in control of all things. And that there's nothing that can happen to any of your children that you don't allow for your glory, for your purposes, and also for our spiritual growth. That we can see when everything else is taken away from us that you're all we really need. And we thank you and praise you. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you hear our cries. We thank you that as your children, we can boldly approach your throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need. You are merciful and you are a loving God. And we will not listen to any of the lies that come from anywhere else that would have us to try to believe otherwise. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.